we are the vulnerable. What makes all the difference is how we respond to that. I commend to you Samantha Power's story in the January 7th New Yorker magazine. It's called The Envoy, and it's about Sergio Vieira de Mello, the late UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the gifted Brazilian diplomat who, early in our occupation of Iraq, was sent to serve as the UN envoy to Iraq. De Mello was a man who gave his life to the possibility of human kinship across differences. Samantha Power's story tells how Sergio, as he was called, did all he could in those early months to stay in relationship with both the U.S. authorities and the Iraqi people, and how his policy of listening and accessibility stood in contrast to the U.S. approach of hunkering down in the fortress of the Green Zone. You can't help people at a distance, DeMello said. And how he was appalled by the willful isolation of the Americans and by the conditions at U.S. detainment camps. And how his vulnerability led to his death three-plus months into his mission when, on August 19, 2003, a truck driver detonated a bomb outside the U.N. offices and 15 U.N. officials and seven civilians died in the blast. DeMello survived for some hours trapped in a shaft and pinned beneath rubble. The Iraqis had no equipment to get him out. It had been stolen. His life ebbed away. Heavy equipment arrived too late. When they got to him, they found him lying on the UN flag that had hung in his office. Two months and another bomb attack later, the UN left Baghdad, left it to the coalition. We are the vulnerable. What makes all the difference is how we respond to that. I'm thinking this week about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and I'm thinking of other heroes as well. I'm thinking how the list of heroes grows longer, how Jesus' words inspired Gandhi, then how Jesus and Gandhi inspired King, then how Jesus and Gandhi and King inspire us, and so the lineage of heroes and justice seekers expands through time, thank goodness. I'm thinking how for Gandhi and King, the Beatitudes, words attributed to Jesus of Nazareth, words that are a hymn in praise of the vulnerable, were absolutely key. The Beatitudes are printed on your program cover. Those of you who can manage this size print, will you join me in reading aloud these blessed R statements as a responsive reading? I'll read the first one, then we'll alternate right through the list. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Thank you. 
It's clear to many Jesus scholars that the author of this gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, added things to this list, added things later, added, for instance, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, and added in spirit to the word poor to make it less radical and less troublesome to the wealthy. But the additions were words that Jesus probably didn't say. The older, more authentic version of the Beatitudes, Luke's version, has only three items on the list. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, and blessed those who weep. What's more, scholars say a closer translation of Luke's three Beatitudes, which likely are Jesus' words, would give us something more dynamic and direct. Something like, congratulations, you poor. God's domain belongs to you. Congratulations, you hungry. You will have a feast. Congratulations, you who weep now. You will laugh. The blessed are you is more like a high five. Good for you, you hungry, you weeping, because you get it. You know you are vulnerable. And this can open the door to a kinship and a purpose like none other. The vulnerable. I've been holding and viewing and wrestling with and tasting that word, vulnerable, for several weeks now. The vulnerable. Vulnerable is a word that means capable of being wounded. Under junk heaps and stripped and burning cars and bombed out buildings, under for your own good and in our best interest, under front runner, leveraged buyouts, arm deals, state of the union, rates of exchange, it must be there, throbbing its slow pulse behind the lips, a softness, a tenderness, something in need of protection, something capable of feeling harm. Capable of feeling harm, capable of being wounded. That's us. Vulnerable we are to January cold, to winter viruses, to heart attacks, broken hearts, broken dreams, job loss, falling down icy stairs, falling for the sales pitch of a mortgage lender or the suggestion that bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were partners in a crime. For me, this theme, this thought, about vulnerability started last month as I prepared a December sermon. In that sermon, I spoke briefly about the worldview Adolf Hitler sold to his people in the 1930s. It was a worldview without a moral center. It was a worldview that celebrated a constant struggle for domination and despised peace as a sign of weakness. It was a worldview that gave lip service to religion but made a god of the survival of the fittest, the fittest being the Germanic tribe. And how many ways there were in that toxic time, 1933 to 1945, to be vulnerable in mind, body, and soul. Hitler was vulnerable to his fanatic delusion. The German populace was vulnerable to a promise of prosperity and pride. The Jews and others not in the tribe were vulnerable to the machinery of mass killing. And people of faith who objected to Jewish persecution were also vulnerable to punishment and death. The essay I referred to last month was written 30 years ago by Unitarian Universalist minister, the Reverend Carl Scovel. 
Carl's 1978 essay is called Christian Responses to the Nazi State in Germany. And in it, he not only reminds us of the poisonous aspects of that era, but he also tells us about the German Christians, church people, who resisted the insanity and paid for that. Kurt Gerstein, who broadcast the news about the death camps. Father Ramp, who opposed the Nazi mayor of his village. Max Millen Kolbe, who died for another prisoner at Auschwitz. Paul Schneider, who was jailed and starved for preaching resistance. Julius von Jahn, who protested the terror of the Crystal Knight and was beaten by a gang of thugs. Carl Scovel tells us about these, these ones who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he also tells us what he learned in his research, that so often these people of faith did what they did with great lightness of spirit and endured their punishments with something like joy, a joy beyond telling. Vulnerable, it means capable of being wounded. How do some people, people with a clear grasp of their own vulnerability, still walk into danger with open hands? so confident that there's something more compelling, more compelling than survival. Death is not the ultimate evil, said Martin Luther King, Jr. A detainee in his seventh year at Guantanamo, Atman Abdulharim Mohammed, who was a law student in Yemen and who now is force-fed twice daily to thwart his participation in hunger strikes, writes in a smuggled-out poem, I am sorry, my brother, that shackles bind my hands and iron is circling the place where I sleep. I am sorry, my brother, that I cannot help the elderly or the widow or the little child. Do not weigh the death of a man as a sign of defeat. The only shame is in betraying your ideals and failing to stand by your beliefs. The only shame is in betraying your ideals and failing to stand by your beliefs. We are the vulnerable. What makes all the difference is how we respond to that. I mentioned the Reverend Karl Scovel, writer of the essay on German Christian responses to the Nazis. Reverend Scovel has long been one of my heroes. He's close to 80 years old now and retired. He lives in a little town in Massachusetts. He served in ministry for 50 years, and for 40 of those years, he served our historic King's Chapel in the heart of Boston. He has been prolific as a teacher, as a scholar, once he even had a weekly radio show. In the year 2000, at our General Assembly in Nashville, the Reverend Carl Scovel was given the Unitarian Universalist Association's highest award, a Lifetime Achievement Award, called the Award for Distinguished Service to the Cause of Unitarian Universalism. He is our living history. He is a living hero. I met Carl 12 years ago at a conference on spiritual practice, which he led, and I remember a line he quoted from the end of Shaw's play, St. Joan. The line goes, Must the saints die in every age for those who have no imagination? But at that time, I didn't know about Carl what I learned last week, and now it all makes sense. 
I unearthed an article. It was an article that the Reverend Scoville wrote for McCall's magazine. It was published in a Thanksgiving issue in 1967, 40 years ago. And I'll share uh, most of it with you now. He called it, The Year Thanksgiving Came Early. On December 8, 1941, the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, three soldiers came to our house and escorted my father to the Japanese municipal headquarters. There he was told that the United States and Japan were at war and that we were under house arrest. Six months earlier, when the American consulate had ordered all Americans to leave China, we had remained in Chining, a small Japanese-occupied city where my father was a medical missionary. He had been running Chining's only hospital, but the rest of us, my mother, my four brothers and sisters and I, were not allowed to leave the mission compound. We occupied ourselves with games and schoolwork, and those of us who understood tried not to think about the future. Our checks from the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions in New York stopped coming, and for the next 14 months we subsisted on two payments from the Swiss Red Cross and the unfailing kindness of friends. We were still hungry most of the time, and we came to know the real meaning of the prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. I remember my mother taught us how to make air sandwiches, air sandwiches which we filled with imaginary meats and spreads, fantasy, kept our minds busy even if it didn't fill our stomachs. On February, in, on February 1943, we learned that we were going to be taken to a civilian concentration camp in Visian, a city 200 miles from Chining. Two weeks later, we walked to the railroad station with our servants and a crowd of our Chinese friends who had helped us through the long months of house confinement. Our ama sat down in the road and wept, for we had been her children. We took with us several suitcases packed with clothes and toilet articles, our bedding rolls, and a Bible, the only book we were allowed. And after a long day's trip on a dirty, clanky train, we arrived in Visian and were driven in trucks to the camp. It was a former college campus ringed with brick walls and coils of barbed wire. Within the walls now lived 2,000 people, French, English, Belgian, American, Canadian, and Italian. They were missionaries businessmen, doctors, teachers, prostitutes, entertainers, secretaries, priests, and nuns. Our family of seven took its place among them in two nine-by-twelve-foot rooms. He goes on then to describe life in camp where everyone was forced to work. And then he said our diet consisted of bread, a thin vegetable stew, and occasionally a scrap of meat. Food became an obsession with us. No matter how a conversation began, it always ended with food. We talked of food. We dreamed of food. We sang of food. We stole food. I can remember trying to remember what chicken tasted like. We were living on about 1,500 calories a day, enough to keep us going, but not enough to ease the constant hollowness of our stomachs. After six months at Visian, we heard great news. All American families were to return home to be exchanged for Japanese prisoners from America. We would go by train to Shanghai, then take a Japanese ship from Shanghai to Goa, where we would meet the Gripsholm, a Swedish ship chartered by the Swiss Red Cross. From Goa, we would go to New York. 
The trip from Visien to Goa was one long nightmare. I remember it as a series of flickering scenes, standing up all night on the train to Shanghai, a filthy bunk on the lowest deck of the ship, continual nausea and fatigue, picking the worms out of the rice at mealtimes. Then the ship sailed into the harbor of Goa. But where was the grips home? We docked, and one day, two, then three went by, and still no grips home. The rumors buzzed among the passengers. The Gripsholm had been sunk. The Japanese had called off the exchange. Sweden had entered the war. These rumors sound ridiculous now. But people who have been living on the edge of despair will believe anything that might explain their plight. I awoke early on the fourth day, September 30th, and when I went on deck, I saw a crowd at the ship's railing. I ran over, and there on the horizon was a white ship gleaming in the morning sun. It was the grip's home. We stood at the rail and watched that beautiful ship glide silently over the water toward us like a white angel of delivery. Two lines of prisoners, Japanese and American, began to file past each other between the ships. Technically, we were enemies, and we said little but looked at each other with wonder and some pity. When our family went aboard the Grips home, a man from the Red Cross handed each of us a chocolate bar. Almost automatically, we handed our chocolate bars to my father. He then took one bar and divided it among us. We were accustomed to saving something for the next day. We were told we would have to wait on deck for a few hours while our cabins were cleaned. We couldn't have cared less. It was a pleasure to sit on our suitcases and look at this shining ship. Then suddenly I saw a waiter. I will never forget him. He had blue eyes and a trim brown mustache. He wore a white jacket with brass buttons. His dark blue trousers were neatly creased. His black shoes were shined. He walked erect, proudly, and he was holding, imagine this, a platter of sliced turkey. We stood, we stared, we gaped at this man as he placed the platter on a table spread with white linen cloth. Can you understand our shock? Can you imagine these ragged, thin refugees used to a plate of wormy rice or a bowl of thin soup for lunch staring at this solitary platter of turkey and crying because they knew it was real? Everyone was crying, fathers, mothers, ambassadors, lawyers, gray-haired missionaries, tow-headed children, and even a couple of criminals who were being extradited to America. Then shouts of hurrah began to accompany the tears as other stewards filed through the crowd. They carried whole hams and turkeys, cheeses, fruit salads, and vegetable salads, mounds of Swedish rolls, and bowls heaped high with pats of butter, pitchers of milk, and coffee. We stood on the deck chairs and hatches and lifeboats and the deck, weeping and cheering as each beaming waiter appeared on stage with his special contribution. Yet, when the table was completely set, no one lunged forward. For a moment, we paused and looked at the masterpiece of a well-spread board. Someone in the back began to sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we all joined in, and when we'd sung our thanks, we crowded around the tables. Our biggest problem was that we couldn't eat very much. I remember that I actually ate nothing. I went from table to table, pouring myself a glass of tomato juice at each one and downing the drink in a single gulp. 
I must have drunk a dozen glasses of tomato juice that noon, and that's all I had for dinner, but that was enough. That was my Thanksgiving, and I've never had another one like it. It was a moment of sheer grace. It was a moment of absolute joy. Someday, when my children are old enough to understand, I will tell them the story of this Thanksgiving. They may be stuffed with turkey and all the trimmings, but I think they will get the point. It wasn't just food that we gave thanks for when we cried and cheered and sang on the deck of the Grips home. We gave thanks because we had become human beings again. Congratulations, you poor. God's domain belongs to you. Congratulations, you hungry. You will have a feast. Congratulations, you who weep now. You will laugh. We are the vulnerable. What makes all the difference is how we respond to that. People of faith are asked to acknowledge the vulnerability, to name it, to give it holy space, and to live in service to one another. I can't help thinking that Carl Scovel's long dedication to a faith community grew from his experience of vulnerability. He surely learned that when we join together, our response is clearer and stronger. How does this religious community respond to our vulnerability? What do we say to one another and to the world? We have a treasured response, one that has been forged, shaped, tested, lived, bought with sacrifice by so many heroes, women and men, known and unknown. Our children's version we call the Rainbow Path, the adult version you may be carrying with you now in your purse or wallet. It sounds like this. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote, one, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, two, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, three, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, four, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, Five, the right of conscience and the use of democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Six, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Seven, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. There it is, prepared and laid out like a feast set before us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Bless God from whom all blessings flow. Give us courage for the task and joy, great joy, in our togetherness. Amen. <laughs>